You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We are going to be in the Gospel of John, in the 8th chapter, looking at verses 2 through 11. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Now, as you guys are flipping there, you may have noticed there is a kind of a, a bracket there. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. And so what I want to do real quick, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, is give a simple idea of what's going on before we move forward. So this may appear in your Bible. This may be just a footnote in your Bible. Um, the variation, depending on the version you're using, may have it marked a little bit differently. But what is going on? So the first thing, I got four things to just kind of answer the question, what is going on? This passage that we're about to work through today is not found in the earlier manuscripts. The earlier manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts we have in the New Testament, we have over 23,000 New Testament manuscripts. Just to, just to put that in perspective, Homer's Iliad only has 1,700. The New Testament has 23,000 manuscripts, dating as far back as the first century A.D. These, this passage is found only in, in manuscripts dating as far back as the third and fourth century. And so because of that, it has gone under a little bit more of a rigorous um, questioning and viewing of, okay, is this original to God's Word? There's, there's nothing about it that is contradictory to Scripture. There's nothing about it that contradicts the doctrine. There's nothing about it that is necessarily untrue. It's just not found in earlier manuscripts. And just kind of a, another fun fact regarding manuscripts, the Old Testament It wasn't until the 1940s that, in regards to the Hebrew manuscripts, there's manuscripts written in a few different languages. In the Old Testament, you had Hebrew, right, which is the original language, but you also had a Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. As far as the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, we only had manuscripts that dated back to the 9th century. Then when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1940s, those manuscripts took us back to the 2nd century B.C. So 1,100-year difference in manuscripts between the Old Testament. So, and what they found was that 95% of what we have in the Old Testament was perfectly accurate. The 5% that had some variation was just a variation of maybe word order. Or just typical scribal errors. Nothing that would actually deter away from the context or the content of the passage at all. So the argument that God's Word has been added to over the years and it's like the telephone game, it just keeps changing, is 100% false. And it doesn't line up with the science of actually testing God's Word. So first things first. This passage is not found in the earlier manuscripts. Secondly, this passage... Because it's debated whether or not it's original to God's Word, the question has been, where is it placed? So there is no agreement on the placement. You could find it here 
in John chapter 8 like we do. You could potentially find it in some, in some manuscripts after John chapter 7, verse 36. In some other manuscripts, they put it after Luke uh, chapter 21, verse 38. And also, other manuscripts put it in John chapter, after chapter 21, verse 25. So the, it, it's really debated, where does this go in the Gospels? There's no other context here. We don't know exactly what time frame Jesus did this or didn't do this, and so that comes into question. The third thing is, though there is question as to whether or not this is original to the manuscript, there is a strong reason to trust this as historically accurate. Some of the most brilliant New Testament scholars and people who test these manuscripts and understand manuscripts like the back of their hands will tell us to, there is no reason we should doubt the historicity of this passage. The question just becomes the source of it. The question becomes, where was it? <laughs> and the last thing is, there is freedom to disagree as to whether or not the verses we will read today are original to the Word of God. Meaning they were written down by one of the apostles or somebody in the time of Jesus or shortly after. But here's the thing. Whatever road you choose, whether you choose to believe that this, these words are exactly the Word of God or not, you have to do so with humility and reverence because it's possible you could be wrong. If it is God's Word, and you treat it flippantly, then you run the risk of coming against the Word of the Lord. And so you see the opposite is true. I am so indifferent right now. <laughs> I have I read so many different positions. I watched and listened to so many different sermons and lectures on this. And there's literally a 50-50 split as to whether or not this is viewed as original. So I did not know exactly how I was going to approach this. I probably changed the way I was going to approach this three different times. And so how I'm going to do it is just by this. Giving you that simple caveat this morning of understanding why you have what it is you have in the Scripture. And then I'm going to do what I can to just preach this passage and maybe I'll change my mind a year from now or 10 years from now. But all that to say, it has for a long time just been simply regarded as the Word of God. And it is okay to just simply land there. Though I would encourage you as well to go and study, to dig into this stuff. To Look, the Bible invites you to scrutiny. The, the Bible invites criticism. The Bible invites the skeptic to come in and test it and challenge it and see if it's actually true or not. The Bible's not afraid of that. This is not ammunition for the atheist. This is not ammunition for the skeptic. Though they think it is, it really doesn't help their case in any way. So, we're going to move into the preaching of this now. And so in studying the history of debate around this passage, there's also some other interesting notes here. That some in church history claimed that these verses, John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, were potentially taken out of the Bible, taken out because there was a, a fear that some would take this passage as an excuse to commit sin, knowing that God would forgive you. Just a license to go commit adultery. Just a license to go commit murder. Just a license to go do whatever, because God would just forgive you. Paul 
addresses this elsewhere in the book of Romans. Should I go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. And so there are some who had believed that, and so they had some concern about that. Ultimately, it seems outrageous to think that God would grant some sort of forgiveness to those who are seemingly guilty of really scandalous sin. It's just completely scandalous to us. It makes no sense. But you see, the gospel is really audacious. The gospel is audacious. Audacious in that it is bold, it is fearless, it is courageous, it is valiant, it is audacious. It takes a lot of courage to forgive, especially if a crime is severe or if it has caused significant pain towards someone, towards a victim or victims. And if you don't believe me, allow me to paint the picture a little more clearly. There was a seeming tension in the 60s between civil rights leaders Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Martin Luther King wanted to forgive the white community and begin judging one another by the character of the man and not by the color of their skin. Whereas Malcolm X seemed to operate as an any means necessary renegade wanting the white community to feel the pain and pay the price. Martin Luther King's philosophy of forgiveness and this push for character evaluation was audacious in the time. Completely audacious. But it was extremely powerful. Imagine speaking out against a society that openly hated the color of your skin and also courageously calling a people who share in your experiences to not to resort to violence or revenge. Puts you in a weird position, doesn't it? The forgiveness of Jesus is anything but popular. It's anything but easy. The forgiveness exercise in today's passage requires a large amount of courage and boldness as Jesus both upholds the Word of God and extends forgiveness to a guilty sinner. So today we are going to see the audacious forgiveness of Jesus. The audacious forgiveness of Jesus. And so if this passage is properly placed in the New Testament where we have it here, starting in 753 through 811, then what we are seeing is this flow, this pattern where the authorities come out, they challenge, Jesus responds, which then creates a domino effect of how the authorities would then come out again to interact with Jesus. So in last week's sermon, we saw the authorities wanting to arrest Jesus in the temple area, and they, were, they failed to do so. Jesus got up and delivered the most beautiful sermon talking about Him being the living waters and coming to Him and having eternal life. And He did this as the priest in the morning had gone down to the pool of Siloam, also known as the living waters, filled up a golden cup and brought it back as a water offering to the Lord. Jesus displaying this beautiful picture that He is the living water of life. The authorities, the officers of the authorities were just completely stunned at Jesus' sermon that they went back to the Jewish authorities saying, uh, look, we can't arrest him. No one has ever spoken like this man before. And the authorities are saying, are you now deceived? 
you dimwits. You don't understand. You're just like everyone else around here who just doesn't seem to understand the Scripture. And so, Jesus went off to the Mount of Olives and everyone else went home. And so if this is historically accurate in this time, then the next morning Jesus goes back into the temple and now the authorities come back in in another attempt to trap him because they had failed before. And so we see in verses 2 through 6, the first part of 6, that the world will stop at nothing to try and end Jesus. The world will stop at nothing to try and end Jesus. And kids, if you're kind of following me and drawing some pictures and stuff, you know what you can do is draw a bunch of rocks, a bunch of stones all over your page. Okay, that's going to play a big picture here. And then maybe a woman crying off to the side, right? So draw a bunch of rocks and then a picture of a lady, a woman, and she's really sad and she's really crying. And that'll make sense to these first few verses here. So the world stops at nothing to try to end Jesus. Verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So the Jews, these authorities, this is kind of one of the first hints that scholars would say that this is not original to John because John never mentions scribes in the rest of his gospel. That's just one piece of evidence I would not have even known otherwise. But that's the sort of detail that goes into scrutinizing manuscripts that aside the jewish authorities are seeking to trap jesus and they do this by while he's in the midst of teaching placing this woman who was apparently caught in the act of adultery right in front of him right in front of a crowd and so this woman comes before him and so the law then commands that they stone her that they put her to death But this should cause us right away to ask a question. Where is the man in this situation? This (laughs) I get it. Mm Mm-hmm. Amen. (laughs) This where's the man? She was caught in the act of adultery. Well, it takes two to tango, you know. So did this guy just run off? Or were they just going after her? They wanted to let the guy go, or were they just kind of playing this all along? Is this woman married? Is she engaged? Is she single? Because depending on that will also depend on the death penalty. Two of those reasons would result in stoning, but one of those in another uh, document outside of the Bible, uh, Jewish practices would require strangling. So either she would be hung or she would be stoned, but it depends. Is she married? Is she single? Or is she engaged? What they say regarding the law of Moses is true. Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 through 24 says, If there is a betrothed virgin, or engaged, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, 
Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the question comes to Jesus. So Jesus, what do we do? Do we stone her or not? Do we obey the commands of Moses or not? And they try to put him on the spot in front of the crowd. And they do this. Their motivation is not, hey, we really need some help here. We're really confused. We're not sure what we should do or not do. No, the motivation is to test Jesus. They will steamroll this woman. They will continue to publicly shame her and guilt her. They don't care. They have an objective. And this woman is just a prop to getting what they want. They ultimately want a charge against Jesus. If Jesus goes against the law of Moses, they have every reason to arrest him for blasphemy. They also have every reason to point out, no, you truly are not the Son of God. You are not the Messiah. You are not the Christ you would claim to be. So the best way for Jesus to be disproved is to attack his understanding of the Word of God, to try to disprove his understanding of the Word of God, the Bible. The world church is looking for opportunity to come to us with this, did God really say? Are you sure God said this? Even passages like this that are not found in earlier manuscripts might give the skeptic ammunition, right? Oh, I got him right here. God's Word is not really reliable. But church, the fact that this passage of Scripture has these brackets around it, these asterisks, though we have no historical reason to doubt it, nor does it contradict or take away from any of God's Word, is a testimony to the reliability of Scripture through the ages. If a passage like this that looks so much like the Word of God, it looks like it, smells like it, tastes like it, and yet it still has some question marks around it, whether or not it existed a couple of hundred years earlier, should comfort you to know that not just anything can make it into the Bible. Not just anything can make it into Scripture. We're not Mormons here where we can just add to the Word of God whenever we please or take away from it whenever we, don't, whenever we feel like it. God is not playing this add or take away game. And so you can trust with complete certainty that the Bible you hold in your hand is the Word of God. It is the Word of God held by the prophets, held by the apostles. It's the Word of God that was even held by the ancient church. You are a part of church history holding the Word of God since the time Christ was here and even before. And knowing the world has it out for Jesus, you can be sure of these things as well. That the world will always look for an opportune time to put you on the spot. You cannot be surprised. You must, church, be ready in season and out of season. You need to constantly feast on the Word of God. You need to constantly go to the Lord in prayer. You need to be aware of the Word, because the world will try to test you. The world will try to bring charges against you. And it is the Word of God that will come to your defense. The world will go to any measure to get to you. Even if it means using shame and guilt. Pulling up your dirty laundry, your dirty past. 
And when it does, when the world does, because they will. I mean, you've essentially given the world your history on the internet. (laughs) If you fill out any platform of social media, you have given everybody really a chronicled outline of your life and all the mess-ups and everything along with it. Granted, some of the more darker things in your life are not exposed, but the world can find out. And the enemy is crafty. But here's the thing. You don't need to live in fear of, man, I don't want to be found out. Man, I don't want anyone to know this deep, dark secret of mine or what I really did. Rather, you need to be reminded of who God tells you you are. You don't need to live in condemnation and shame and guilt. You need to live in the freedom of who, who you are in Christ. Not I, but Christ through me. The world will try to get you to contradict the Word of God, to go against it. But understand this. Just know, God's Word cannot contradict itself. And God has no desire to confuse. Look, you can test the Bible. Go through the Bible. You're talking about you hold a book that is a library of 66 books that spans thousands of years. Multiple authors, different time frames of which they were written, in different occasions, And none of it is contradictory. Go and test it. Just know that His Word is always true and always clear. And all the world, all they may do is just come after you. But as you do, follow in the example of Jesus and uphold the Word. And so we see in the second part of verse 6-9 through that Jesus upholds the Word. Kids, if you can find some room in there, draw a picture of a Bible. It can be open or closed or whatever. Verse 6, in the second part of it. Jesus bent down and wrote with His finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask Him, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. We have no idea what Jesus is doing on the ground, what he's writing on the ground. There's a lot of speculation, but I think the best and safest thing to say is we have no clue. But what we do know is that Jesus wasn't quick to take the bait. Right? They came to him. They threw this out to him. And you see in verse 7, they continued to ask him. Right? He's down in the sand, riding in the ground. They continue to ask him. They're just wanting him to bite that bait and just to be lured in. And he takes his time. He takes his time while they're begging for a response. And so then Jesus responds. And he responds with one line. He doesn't give any explanation. He doesn't feed into anything. He just gives one line. And it kind of makes us wonder, what is Jesus saying and doing? You know, it's also possible in this whole setup, in this whole trap, that the authorities are trying to play him in two different ways. Maybe trying to get him to contradict the Word of God, but also to potentially go against the Roman law as well. Now, this is a little bit more of a theory. We don't know that explicitly here, 
But what we do know is that during this time, for capital punishment to take place, especially in this public setting in Jerusalem, there is the need to consult the Roman overlords to make sure that what they're doing is okay. You see this when Jesus is crucified. that They have to go to Pontius Pilate before they can just act out. They were ready to crucify him beforehand, but they needed to go through the proper channels of government in order for this to take place. So it is possible then, possible, that they're trying to trap Jesus in one of those two realms. And if that is true, it could be just like you see in the Gospel of Mark, in the 12th chapter, verses 13 through 17, when, they, when the authorities were asking him, who should we, uh, should we pay taxes, Jesus? And the same trap there, do we, pay, do we uh, obey the government or do we obey God? And Jesus says, yes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He doesn't take the bait and they don't trap him. And so it could be the same here. And so for them, for the authorities, any charge, even if it's him going against the word of God or breaking the Roman law, any charge is a win for these authorities. They just want Jesus out of the picture. And you'll notice, Jesus does not address the law of Moses directly. He does not even debate the law of Rome. Instead, Jesus responds with a, what would seem to be a direct reference to other scripture. Where it says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, could also be a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, which says, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Jesus' statement to the authorities here is not only perfect people are allowed to stone this woman. Right? If, there is any, if that was the case, then nobody could ever render any sort of judgment or justice on the planet Earth because nobody is perfect. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying, look, let's just allow this woman to get away with breaking the law. Let's just you know, cover our eyes and just forget it. He's not saying that. He's also not saying, you know what, let's just stone her and not consult Rome and hope that they never find out. The words he uses takes the authorities, the Jewish authorities, back to God's word, back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and forces them to examine the manner of which this stoning is to take place. It's to take place first with those who are the direct accusers and witnesses of this situation, and also ones who are not guilty of this crime. And so you begin to see these men are now themselves in the bit of a conundrum. They either disobey Scripture or they disobey Roman law. And you begin to see from the oldest to the youngest of them throw their stones down. And then Jesus, just like a boss, just kneels back down and just starts drawing in the sand again. It's like the greatest mic drop scene ever. Just has one line and then he's back down in the sand and they walk off. The world will come at you, testing you, trying to find a charge against you. You and I, we must remain steadfast, calm, focused, trusting in the Lord, 
while we have no idea what Jesus was writing in the sand, what we do see is his steadfastness. When it was time to speak, he spoke. He didn't try to rush it. He didn't try to play the game. And when he spoke, it was piercing to the soul. Why? Because it was God's word. So church, we need to, you need to trust the Spirit of God that He will give you the words when you need them. Do not be afraid and do not feel the pressures of the world to have to answer in the way that the world is throwing accusations, but trust in the Spirit of God that in that time of testing, He will give you the words that you need to speak. And as Christians, look, we don't deny the reality that we break God's law. Jesus wasn't denying the law. Jesus wasn't sitting here denying the fact that if this woman had committed adultery, she was deserving of death. He never did that at all. The world constantly loves to taunt the church as hypocrites, as people who tell others not to sin, but then go and sin themselves. You know, when the world says those sorts of things, we can respond with, a, yeah, we are hypocrites. <laughs> Is this a surprise to you? Of course we're hypocrites. But we all are striving to live holy lives for God. And along the way, we do find ourselves sinning, messing up, breaking things, ruining things, hurting people. And look, and the sin of the church, of people who are the people of God, is not just some little Sunday school sin where it's, you know, I lied during prayer request time when I said everything's fine. Everything's not fine. That's, that's not that kind of little sin. No, we do big sins as well. We lie. We commit adultery. We cheat. We steal. We murder. We slander. We gossip. The church on so many levels is completely messed up. And look, it gives no, there's no excuse to sin. The church is not like, hey, just go sin because God will just cover it over with grace. No. But we are broken people still trying to wrestle with the things of the flesh in conjunction with the Spirit of God who lives inside of us. Yes, we understand we are messed up. The world can tell us that, but it shouldn't even be anything that hurts you. Yeah, of course we're messed up. But here's the thing. When we take our sins and compare them to the Word of God, we are reminded that we are deserving of death. Like the woman here caught in adultery, we should be, like if the world wants to throw us out and shame us and try to guilt us, we should go, yeah, we are deserving of death. We don't deserve any grace. But here's where the good news starts to become good news for us. Jesus stands as the judge for our souls. He's the judge. The world can condemn us of our sins, but understand, for them to cast stones, they must not, also, not only be a witness to the crime, but they must also be innocent of the crime of which they're accusing us. As the world accuses us, they are not innocent of these things themselves. We don't need to worry about the world in this case. We need to be worried about our God. And as the world accuses us, Here's the good news. The Word of God comes to our defense. And one by one, the world sees they cannot overcome. And before you know it, it's just you and Jesus. 
And that's both terrifying and good news that Jesus is the judge. And we know this through John's Gospel. It's very clear that Jesus is the judge. He mentions that even back to the fifth chapter. But Jesus stands as the perfect judge. He stands as the perfect witness. And He is the one who has not committed any sin in any way, shape, or form. That's why He stands as the perfect righteous judge. And that's why it should be terrifying. Because as we stand before Him, none of us are innocent. None of us are guilt-free. All of us are 100% deserving of death. We all have broken God's law. We all deserve death. But, there is good news. And this good news is audacious. And it is this, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Verses 10 through 11. Kids, if you could write, if you drew a picture of a a person crying there, just right next to them, I forgive you from God. I forgive you. That's if you can write. Parents, if they can't, write it for them. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Verses 10 through 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus asked the woman, Where are they? Where are the witnesses? Where are those who are going to condemn you and stone you here? Where are the ones who would have the right to do these things? There's no one, Lord. And don't misunderstand, Jesus saying, to this woman, woman, calling her that. He was not being disrespectful. It was a respectful interaction. And even the woman responding to Jesus, this is not a a divine statement of, oh, you are the Lord, the Savior. This is kind of like, sir, no one is here to condemn me, sir. And so then Jesus says these words, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. Only God has the right to forgive sin. And this is audacious, right? And Jesus has encountered this before as He told the man, who, the paralytic who was healed, rise, take up your mat, and sin no more. He was questioned, who gives you the right, the authority to forgive sins? We have to understand and remember that this is the Son of God. This is God in the flesh. The Word made flesh. Jesus is God. He is judge. He's been granted the authority as judge given to Him by the Father to forgive sins. This does not mean He ignores sins. This does not mean that the person whom He's forgiving is not deserving of death. They are. But it is only God who can overcome that punishment, overcome that sin, overcome that law-breaking, and extend forgiveness because He is the standard of the law. And so Jesus then calls this woman to live not out of her past of shame and guilt and condemnation, but to move forward in a path of purity, sinning no more. This is about to get real for some of you. Some of you 
Jesus knows all the gross details of your past. He knows all of your sins. He knows all of your guilt. He knows all of your shame. There is nothing hidden from His eyes. And while you and I may be presumed innocent or maybe get off the hook before the eyes of human courts or a human audience, before an all-knowing and all-powerful God, we are completely exposed and condemned already. We can get away with it here. We can hide behind the post. We can hide behind our emotions. We can not say anything and we can jump out of church early and we can avoid all conversation and avoid all interaction so it seems like we're innocent. But God knows you're not. But here's the thing. Believing in Jesus, faith in Jesus, grants you something that you and I don't deserve. We end up receiving from Him never-ending mercy. That is, not receiving something that you ultimately deserve, which is wrath. We also receive an endless supply, eternal supply of grace. That is, receiving something you don't deserve, which is life. And an eternal supply of forgiveness. That is an ongoing pardoning of your sin. That means the blood of Jesus constantly atoning for the wretchedness of your sin, of your shame, of your guilt. Look, your faith to Jesus is not just paying loyalties to Him. Just saying, yeah, I, I like this guy. No, it's literally joining in His death saying that you now are dead to your sin. It is literally joining in the resurrection, saying that you are now alive in Him. And so all the splendid holiness and righteousness that makes up who Jesus is, now makes up who you and I are in Him. This is the imputed righteousness of God. This is what it means to be unified with Jesus. This is what it means to abide in Christ. So in other words, this woman who is guilty of adultery, who is full of shame and full of guilt, Jesus is saying to her, your sins are forgiven. My righteousness is now your righteousness. Now go live and sin no more. So the perfect sinlessness of Jesus is now what covers you, church, this very moment. And I say this is going to hit some of you hard because some of you are living in that shame. You're living in that guilt. You're living in that condemnation. The world reminds you of it, and all you do is think about it. That has consumed you and has become your identity. That is not who you are. Do you have baggage this morning? Do you have remorseful shame and weighty guilt that seems to just be too big to go away? God can't seem to get rid of this. Can you relate to the woman in the story being thrown down before the masses, embarrassed, exposed for wrong done, yet knowing you deserve whatever comes your way. Maybe you've just thrown your hands up in the air and you say, look, this is just my lot in life. I cannot win no matter what I say, no matter what I do. Anything I say, anything I touch becomes tainted and ruined. I'm just full of disgust. But Jesus stands before you stands before you today, the wretched sinner that you are, and says, I do not condemn you. Go 
and sin no more. What can the world do to you, church? If Jesus won't condemn you, then the world can't condemn you. If He has freed you, you are free indeed. That's not hypothetical. That doesn't come with any sort of caveats. That is true. That is legit. You are free. You might think, man, well, that's just an audacious statement. There is no forgiveness so crazy, so scandalous. And maybe you can say, well, you know, this part of the Bible isn't original to God's Word, so maybe Jesus doesn't really forgive to that sort of degree, especially sinners like me. Well, maybe a part of Scripture written by a former blasphemer and murderer named Paul can be an encouragement to you. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1, verse 9, You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus has bore the penalty for your heinous sin, your disgusting sin, your wretched sin, all the shame, all the guilt of your sin. He has paid the penalty for it on the cross. He bore the death penalty for you and me, and in return, in exchange, He extends us life and forgiveness. In the, and in the simplest but yet most difficult way, Jesus calls you to no longer live under that condemnation, but to live under grace, to live in the perfect righteousness that He has given to you by the sacrifice of His blood. And not only can you walk away free from condemnation, the power of Christ's forgiveness resides in you by His Holy Spirit. We just read that. So that means then, you now have the same power to audaciously forgive those who sin against you and those who sin against the church, your family, or others. And you can say in the power of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I forgive you. Jesus does not look at the woman and ignore the reality of her sin. But He does authoritatively grant forgiveness of her sin, allowing her to go away free. Look, People may sin against you, and it's extremely painful. We don't want to overlook that. We don't want to belittle that. But if Christ is able to forgive the person that you've got beef with, then you have to understand that you too have the Spirit of Christ in you, and you also need to work towards forgiveness towards them. And often when it comes to forgiveness... We get so offended because they have offended us. They've sinned against me. They've hurt me. They've done this to me. But we have to understand that the first offense, especially even this woman who committed adultery, was not to the other spouse, but it was to God. She offended God first and foremost. And it's the same with us. You can be really upset. You can really hold on that somebody hurts you and frustrated you, 
But you have to understand that their sin is first and foremost against your God. It's not just about us. So we must press into the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in us to be bold, to be courageous, and forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And then we must go and not just take our free license to sin, but go and live holy lives, pursue holiness, constantly forsaking the flesh, not always towing the line, seeing like, how far can I go before I actually sin? No, that's not who we are. What we need to be are men and women who strive after, after the righteousness and holiness of God. Not giving an ounce, not giving any sort of room for the things of the flesh. Pursuing Him because it is right, it is good. The audacity of forgiveness is the beautiful message of the Bible that you hold in your hands today. You don't have to look at this passage and say, this is too scandalous to be God's original word. I want to assure you, you can be like some in church history and remove this from your Bible and say that this passage gives too much leniency for folks to just sin knowing they'll be forgiven. But I want to caution and warn you the audacious forgiveness you are fearful of here in this passage is laced throughout the entirety of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. You hear sayings like, well, the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath, and the God of love is the God of the New Testament. Where do we hear about God forgiving to the second and third generation in the Old Testament? We have to understand also, in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. That book that freaks all of us out, right? The same God in the New Testament is the same God in the Old. Forgiveness is laced everywhere. That's why God didn't just completely wipe out the Israelites after He brought them out of the land of Egypt. Because He chose mercy. And so, while it may be questionable if this passage of Scripture is no more than a footnote in your Bible, there is no question... There's no question to the fact that the world comes against Jesus, hates Jesus, and yet Jesus remains steadfast to His Word, and He extends to us His everlasting forgiveness if we would receive it in faith. So come this morning and enter into the audacious forgiveness of Jesus.